Hello and welcome to Raw File News. I am your host, Topher M. Ford. With me, my co-host, Mr. Brandon Givens. Brandon, uh, tell us how things are. I'm going pretty good. Had a nice weekend. Learning a little bit more. I'm organizing photos. <laughs> that was my weekend, really. But eh, it was nice and relaxing. Excellent. I'm uh, about the same. I mean, not the organizing photos thing, but, you know, I've been busy this weekend trying to get a bunch of stuff done, uh, especially covering the news, because there is a lot of it. And For so real? Say, yeah. Let's check it out. We're going to dive right in by visiting Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lankans have been engaging in violent protests recently demanding that President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, Rajapaksa, I apologize, uh, Rajapaksa step down. Gota Go Home has become a rallying cry for large segments of the Sri Lankan population. Disapproval of the president has united many different groups, bringing together people of all races and religions. Gota is accused of mismanaging the country's finances as well as extreme racism. Gota's brother served as prime minister until he resigned on Monday, May 9th, amid widespread violent protests. On Friday, May 13th, Gota appointed a member of the opposition party as prime minister, an MP named Ranil Wickremesinghe. I hope I'm saying that right, and I apologize if I'm not. Sri Lanka is in crisis as its federal reserves run dangerously low, due in large part to misuse of public funds by its leaders, but its troubles are compounded by global crises, including the coronavirus pandemic and food shortages caused by the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, problems that threaten many developing countries around the world. So, uh, I heard, I read in one article, uh, they called Sri Lanka kind of the canary in the coal mine for this, uh, for these global problems that are uh, going on. Yeah, I mean, well, that one's been brewing for a while. I was reading up more about that uh, over the last few days, and I thought that the um, the frustration was more ethnic-based than it is. It's just um, general frustration with the government. It's also used as this sort of um, oh, kind of an example of where they say China's kind of um, debt, using debt diplomacy, but it's not exactly fair to China. You know, it's like they, they're they not holding a gun to anyone's head, making them sign loans. And they say, oh, well, they're making them sign these loans and then they're, you know, using it so they can take the property over. And it's like, ah, I mean, they're, they're, a lot of these countries owe more money to other nations. And, but they, there was a, a giant port that was built in Sri Lanka and it was largely financed by the Chinese and it wasn't profitable. And now it's become like a public private partnership between uh, like a, a Chinese private company and the Sri Lankan nation. But uh, it's just kind of an example of, you know, like they've had all this huge government spending and they expected the port to bring in a lot more revenue than it really did. And but that's, that's not really the only problem. Well, the, the reason I just bring it up is 
the media or, you know, a political agenda is probably going to try to blame China for that. And, you know, I mean, there's plenty of stuff to blame China for, but uh, I don't know if that's exactly fair. That's that's right. just local local leadership uh, squandering money. And, but also, yeah, I mean, uh, the you got a large population and it's hard to feed people. <laughs> and the what I've read too said that the the president Gota that he relied on like one section of the population to elect him and he has been he's like mistreated all of the rest of the segments of the population of the you know like Muslim people and uh, people of different races there so He's it's kind of seems like he's pissed off everyone across the board. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they just like uh, their civil war ended about 10 years ago. So, I mean, there has to be ethnic tensions. I can't imagine there's not. That's why I just assume that the riots were the, the, the center of it, which, you know, I shouldn't assume. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, I think the, the majority is Buddhist and um, there's a Hindu minority and Islamic. Um, minority that's smaller than that. Right. And they're all angry. <laughs> they're all angry at each other. <laughs> they're all angry. Well, I mean, that's the thing about human nature. We all get along as long as there are plenty of resources. Then we want to trade right. for mutual benefit. But once resources get tight, we start tribalizing. Okay. Uh, now look into the Philippines. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. will be the next president of the Philippines after winning a landslide victory last week, taking an estimated 97% of the votes. His father ruled as the dictator of the country for 21 years, a period full of human rights abuses and rampant corruption. Sara Duterte Carpio, daughter of outgoing president Rodrigo Duterte, won the seat of vice president in a separate election. So that's unusual. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, it's like nationalism and pride. I think um, when while Duterte was uh, in office, the education system went to kind of uh, looking back at the Marcos time with rose-colored glasses, like, oh, well, this is this time of uh, great economic advancement and stability and. Uh, if it weren't for the Marcoses, then the communist would have taken over, and so they just kind of changed the, you know, changed the, <laughs> So people end up with this like facile understanding of what happened, which is a problem in the U.S. too. You know, we'll call it like a fourth grade understanding of U.S. history, and it, right, you know, coupled with like a nostalgia for what they imagine were better times, which you know. <sighs> Probably isn't true in most cases, but right uh, on well, many different levels. Right. Um, but yeah, the nostalgia is its own psychological phenomenon. It's a thing that keeps us from going crazy. <laughs> because if we if we had to if we remembered all the, all the pain in life as ac accurately as it happened, then none of us would want to go on. There's your nihilism for the day. But our yeah. brains are wired to look back on all the good things and imagine a way back. <laughs> Right. All right. Um, yeah, what was it? So I don't, I guess it's kind of surprising that he won, but not really considering 
um, you know, Duterte's been in power, and I, I guess there are a lot of people that like him, you know. Um, they, he's, his human rights record isn't really all that great, but I, I'm not even sure crime has gone down, but they've killed a whole lot of criminals. I think they've right. had like 30,000 people or something yeah. disappeared. Rodrigo Duterte, I remember him uh, bragging about throwing drug dealers out of helicopters. No. You know, it's, it's yeah. like taking Reagan's war on drugs to whole new levels. Uh, and apparently not uh, not with much effect. But I, I don't know. Yeah, sure. I, I, he was successful in his town. That's how he got um, popular. He's uh, Mindigal. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I gotta uh, pronounce it. But or was um, he? He was mayor there. Yeah, yeah, and they had a really bad gang problem and insurrectionist problem, and because there's Islamic insurrectionists on the island, and he went uh, harsh, uh, you know, like civil rights. What are those? But it worked. <laughs> <laughs> The case crime went down, and so that's largely what he ran on. And you know, you know, people say they you know uh, prefer freedom to security, but it really just depends on how insecure they are. But at the same time, I notice the same people, especially in the U.S., that will will do that line. Oh, you give up um, security. For uh, excuse me, you who give up freedom for security receive and deserve neither. And these are the same ones that will very often kind of give away certain rights or right, fall in line behind law and order, strong guy. Right. <laughs> it's this yeah. cognitive dissonance that's not recognized. And um, but having said that, there are different kinds of freedom, like. If, uh, okay, your freedom of speech is pretty much useless if you can't actually exercise it in reality, even if it isn't the government stopping you. So if I go out on the street and I say something bad about someone's religion and uh, a group of people beat me to death and the police are like, eh, should have kept his mouth shut, then I don't really have freedom of speech. I don't, you know, so. And it goes to that that larger philosophical discussion about uh, freedom versus justice versus agency, you know, personal agency. And that, you know, there's like a balance to be found within those things. And sometimes it's just, it's not even a balance. It's just uh, like a tug of war. I guess. Uh, well, it's a constant debate and struggle, and it should be because situations change. I mean, I I can I can understand if people are in a situation where they do truly live in fear of their lives. Um, they're not free. You know, it's right, like if yeah. I go outside and I could, I could be killed or murdered or you know raped or whatever, then I definitely understand why someone would support a strong man. It's just well. I mean, I can be, you're basically picking your extortioner in a sense. Right. <laughs> and it's like, well, that person seems to perhaps be you know, like, a, there'll maybe be a little bit more transparency and less violence towards me. 
But at the same time, as soon as that other threat doesn't exist, then the strong man should lighten up, but they very often don't, and there's your problem. But that's the whole thing with politics. There's always this push and pull, depending on the situation. Yeah. Right. But yeah, the, but yeah, the law and order thing does get abused where, you know, oh, well, uh, there were some people riding in the street. Well, were you hurt or anything? Well, no, but that, you know, Walmart got, got robbed. And it's like, oh, that's awful. Well, hopefully their insurance will take care of it or something. Right. And, you know, how often is this happening? Oh, once every like eight years or something. Well, that's pretty bad. Or once every 30 years. It's like, well, how often is it destroyed by a tornado or something? Right. Um, oh, let's give up all of our freedoms. Let's uh, let's stop having to, to protect Walmart. Yeah, yeah. it's like uh, it's one of the things that you know during the George Floyd protests in the summer of 2020, one of the places in Minneapolis that got destroyed was a Target, and Target as a the as a corporation came out and said, "It's fine. We're not worried about it. We're more." <laughs> We're more concerned with the social justice aspect, uh, which I'm sure that, you know, the cynically, I think that was them, you know, utilizing that for PR, but the people on the right just completely ignored that. And they're like, that target, <laughs> the target got burned down. Well, so, I mean, it's all in the name. They were a target. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes all I do right. bad jokes. Yeah, I, I I follow you on Facebook. I'm aware of your dad jokes. <laughs> okay, um, moving on to China. Top U.S. officials are warning that China is building military forces with the intention to invade and reclaim Taiwan. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines called the threat acute. At a hearing before the Senate Armed Services Committee, she said, quote, it's our view that China is working hard to effectively put themselves into a position in which their military is capable of taking Taiwan over our intervention. And then Defense Intelligence Agency head Lieutenant General Scott Barrier told the committee, quote, I think they're learning some very interesting lessons from the Ukrainian conflict, like how important leadership is, how important small unit tactics are how important a non-commissioned officer corps is, and really effective training with the right weapon systems and what those systems with the right people would be able to do to thwart that. He also says he believes China would prefer to avoid military conflict if they feel they can reclaim Taiwan through diplomatic means. And meanwhile, the U.S. State Department quietly edited its webpage dedicated to Taiwan recently Removing the sentence, the United States does not support Taiwan independence. The page still <laughs> does still say that the U.S. has a one-China policy. So, <laughs> it's a little subtle machinations yeah. going on. Well, that that's pretty funny because you know, they could say, well, we do support the one-China policy and Taiwan is the one-China. <laughs> so yeah. we... Uh, uh, yeah, the headline though, I think the headline on that was a little misleading or, you know, it's like, oh no, they're prepared for war, but it's like, well, who's not? And right. Like, <laughs> well, 
you know, the U.S. government is constantly kind of like in a, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Alarmist position over China. They're constantly trying to maintain, a, you know, a fear of China, trying to keep people scared of China. Um, and so... You know, they're going to take this information that really probably shouldn't be that surprising that China is, you know, looking for ways that, you know, to counter military, the U.S. military in that situation. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they intend to go that route. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, so that'd be the more accurate uh, headline would would have been something like China is looking at multiple options to reunite with Taiwan because they're looking at diplomatic options and military options. So, right. <laughs> yeah, leading in with the military, it gets good clicks. I mean, you know, that's, that's kind oh, of yeah. the thing. That's, that's how, uh, that's where we are with journalism today. Uh, yeah. You, come on so, guys. Come on guys out there. Click, click, click. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, and then that the little edited, the little edit to the State Department's webpage is uh, interesting. And that was a uh, signal. <laughs> Pretty yeah. sure that was a signal. Yeah. Okay. So um, now let's uh, take a look at Israel. Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abdu Akleh was shot and killed by Israeli forces during a raid on the Palestinian city of Jenin on Wednesday, April 11th. Jenin is in the occupied West Bank of Israel and is home to a refugee camp of around 10,000 people. Al Jazeera says that Abu Akleh was wearing a press vest and was standing in a group of other reporters there covering ongoing raids in the area. Another Al Jazeera reporter, Ali Al Samudi, was also shot in the back but survived and is in stable condition. Abu Akleh's killing has sparked international outrage toward Israel's treatment of its Palestinian residents. Leaders from countries all over the world, as well as groups like Amnesty International, have condemned the killing and have called for transparent investigations. And then on Friday, May 13th, Israeli police attacked Abu Akleh's funeral procession using flash grenades and batons on mourners, including the pallbearers carrying her casket, as the procession marched on foot towards Jerusalem's old city. Israeli officials say the police were forced to act after mourners began throwing rocks at them. Meanwhile, the Israeli government approved the construction of over 4,000 new homes on the occupied West Bank, according to watchdog group Peace Now. From Reuters, quote, There was no immediate government statement, but responding on Twitter to Peace Now's tally, Israel's nationalist interior minister, Ayelet Shaked, called it, quote, a festive day for the settlement of Judea and Samaria, Unquote. Biblical names for the West Bank. So Israel's just trucking along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th th this is just the plan. They just um, keep putting the settlements in the West Bank until eventually they have um, a demographic majority. I, I mean, I think they're they're going to go with the one state solution. It's kind of ironic in a sense because uh, a large part of the war was Israel. It's like 
okay, we're going to have our own state. You know, back in 48, and the Palestinians were like, no, we're one nation. You can't, like, break off half of it and take it. And um, Israel was like, yep, yep, we are. And, uh, you know, they, they won the war. Or, you know, or at least uh, hostilities are at a lull, depending on how you want to look, look at that. And um, now Palestine's like, okay, I guess, I guess we really do need to do that two-state solution. Um, and I think that's the official government. The people themselves are very split, which is what makes it difficult. Because you know, ask Palestinians, well, do you want to support the two-state solution? And it's like, why should we make peace? It's our land, all of it. You know? And it's like, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's not <laughs> all your land. I mean, right. I understand the historical claim. Yeah, but well, I mean, there there has to be kind of a statute of limitations on on that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean that that's where I think like uh, Russia's plan is with like Donbass and Crimea. Like, um, I think their their long term game now is you know facing the reality of not being able to push forward. Um, I mean, maybe maybe they'll break the Ukrainian mines, and, and but it doesn't look like it. I think they're dig in and hold out and then eventually hope the West loses interest and it just becomes kind of like a, a big long trench line, just like it was in 2014. And they just hold it for 50 years or something until eventually they're like, well, you know, it's been 50 years now. We've got an entire generation of people that have been born <laughs> over on this side. So, you know. Now, I'm not, you know, I, w I wouldn't suggest Ukraine, like, um, say, okay, well, we're going to make a peace treaty and, and give that land now. But, you know, just kind of like the reality is if they were to hold it for 50 years, that does change the dynamic. Right. De facto. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so. I'll, well, also, but, it makes me think of this, like, why I was like, I was kind of frustrated that Israel wasn't stepping up for Ukraine. Um, and it's like, oh, yeah, because, you know, how dare they? <laughs> we think right. we have a historical claim to this land, and now we're going to put settlers in it and move people into it. Uh, well, that, we, that begs the question, <laughs> where are the Palestinians going to go? Does Israel, like, is Israel oh, just hoping they'll disappear? No, no they'll, I, they'll, give them, they'll give them citizenship if they'll take it. That's that's what I believe they'll do. They'll, I think their plan is to eventually, uh, well, just like they did with the, the Arab Israelis, you know, they, the people living in what became Israel that were Arab that stayed, they're like, okay, you can take Israeli citizenship. And, you know, a lot of them did. I think that's what they're going to do. Eventually, once they have a clear majority where they know they'll be able to maintain a hold on power, um, then they'll say, okay, we're going to just... They'll probably you just unilaterally declare it. They might have like um, a, a canton, like a county around Ramallah or something that has like some sort of semi-independent federal structure. Um, but that's probably about it for what would be a Palestinian state. Well, Gaza. Um, they'd say, all right, well, Gaza, you're Palestine, and we just and there's a semi-autonomous district within Israel and the West Bank. That, that's, that's what I think their long-term plan is. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. You know, I mean, they keep moving settlers there, and 
you know, parliamentary democracy, once they have the majority, to say, okay, guys, here you go. And, and then a bunch of them will probably say, no, I refuse. I refuse to take your passport. I'm like, okay, well, then you don't get to vote. I will sweat off our back. <laughs> and yeah, this, the killing of this journalist, uh, this Al Jazeera reporter, Shireen Abu Akleh, was, uh, it's gotten a lot of people angry. Um, because it appears that, uh, you know, like, I mean, at least from what I'm reading, it sounds like people believe that she was targeted, you know, and that Israel was targeting these reporters who have been uh, friendly or sympathetic to Palestinians. And uh, I mean, I don't know that, that that's the case for sure, but uh, a lot of people seem to believe that at least uh not not that it will make a difference but you know i guess we'll see uh hopefully it'll be investigated but it's worrisome i mean i don't know that anything will be done i mean journalists uh have a very short life expectancy in many countries and it's very unfortunate because we really rely on them for truth like they're and right. they're hated but that's they're, why yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, we we complain about them and we we hate them for oh they used a headline that just to get clicks and they're 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 just ruck macking or muckracking ah oh. but it's like well yeah right. uh, but without them you know as a person who's worked in journalism for many years now it's it's a fine line and it's not uh it's not easy to walk that line um, because in order for you to get the information out to people, you do have to grab their attention, which is becoming more and more difficult every day. And so if you feel like your message is important and that people need to know it, you know, you do have to do things to try to get their attention but at the same time, if you take that too far in exaggerating things, um, you lose credibility. Rightfully so, I would say. So, yeah, I, you know, it's a matter of how much the people actually care about the information you have, whether <laughs> yeah. you think they should or not. So, yeah, that's one of the things the founding fathers knew was like you, the only way to guard your liberty is through a free press. And yeah. Speaking of uh, animosity toward journalists, uh, our next story is in Saudi Arabia. CIA Director William Burns recently met with Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman to discuss several issues, including supplying oil to the United States and an upcoming deal for the Saudis to purchase weapons from China, which the United States obviously is discouraging. Uh, what's interesting here to me is Burns is a career diplomat, and he seems to be utilizing his experience in that field by meeting personally with government leaders face-to-face, -face, which is an unusual tactic for the chief of the Central Intelligence Agency. So, And people were wondering, you know, when he was appointed to the director of the CIA, he's like the first diplomat who's been in charge. <laughs> We've had... Uh, We've had, you know, military men in charge of the CIA. We've had civilians who were like lawyers. 
We've had, you know, career spies in charge of the CIA. Uh, but Burns is the first diplomat. And he seemed, I wasn't too familiar with him before he was appointed director, but everything about him seems to be that he is like an amazing diplomat. Um, or, you know, just really good at brokering deals. He played a key role in brokering the Iran nuclear deal under Obama, um, using like back channels to facilitate communication. Uh, so this is interesting. It's a, a new a new method for the CIA for him to just like skip all the other channels and just go straight to the leaders himself. Um, well, uh, that may be the way to do it. I mean, and also yeah, the we'll CIA see. doesn't really have the best track record. Yeah. Um, it, it's a complete opposite of the <laughs> methods in the past. Yeah. Let's try something new. Yeah. Uh, right. And plus things are, I think that things have gotten more difficult for the CIA as you know, their job, is well their their job their charter is a little vague it has always been amorphous but you know uh the original spirit behind the cia was to gather information about other countries and to protect the united states secrets uh you know and of course you know, we're, we go through the history of the CIA and see that a lot of people have, uh, you know, utilized the agency for direct intervention and indirect intervention and shadowy manipulation of foreign governments. But their original charter was to provide the president with like a, a news report of what's going on. Yeah. Um, so, but that's getting, at least as far as like protecting the secrets um and finding information that other people don't know that's all getting more difficult as you know communications technology advances everyone has a smartphone so everyone's constantly connected to the internet and to, directly connected to other people around the world uh, everyone has a you know a, a video camera and they can live stream events as they're happening so yeah their job is getting harder. So maybe he's just like trying something new just to see if it works. Well, I think all that openness uh, makes it easier for them to get their information. Well, yeah, that's true. That It, it is providing a wealth of information, but the, they're not getting it before everyone else. They're not ahead of the curve. And when there are things that happen that they'd rather people not know about, there's not a lot that they can do to keep that, you know, keep that information secret. And also the, the CIA has a history of trying to manipulate information, spread propaganda, uh, and, and, you know, manipulate narratives. And that also is becoming more difficult to do because <laughs> people are like, yeah, you're saying this happened, but we've got video from six different angles of the exact opposite happening. You know, so, yeah, I guess he's like, let's see if just like talking to people face to face works. <laughs> well, that sounds good. And I hope they get a little bit more accurate with their analysis. Like, what was it? Afghanistan? They thought um, the army would last longer than it did. And, yeah. Um, the New York Times, I think, predicted. Uh, yeah. Or is it that, the Washington Post, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Like, they oh, they seem collapsing. to know. <laughs> they seem to know 
more than the CIA, which is not <laughs> that unusual, <laughs> oddly enough. Uh, historically, they've the CIA has gotten this the uh, the drop, or I'm sorry, the Washington Post and the New York Times and other major outlets have scooped the CIA a few times. <laughs> uh, so again, that's importance of journalists. Um, uh, all right, well, let's uh, go across the pond. I don't, uh, I don't know why I slipped into an accent there. Uh, to Ireland, where in Ireland, the Democratic Socialist Party, Sinn Féin, I think I'm saying that right? Sinn Féin, won the majority of seats in what is being called a historic election. One of the party's main goals has been to leave the United Kingdom and rejoin the Republic of Ireland. To do so, the people of Ireland would have to approve the measure in a national poll. Uh, So that's big news. Yeah, it'll probably be a few more years before they try that, but... Yeah, it's the first. Yeah, I think the the first time they they've gotten power like that, and uh, but they there's still not a majority support for union with the South, um, but that's that's slowly changing. So maybe ten more years. We'll see. It depends on how good a job these guys do ruling. Well, um, according to Star Trek: The Next Generation, the reunification of Ireland happens in 2024, <laughs> which is which oh. is odd, like spooky that they <laughs> that they predicted that in 1990. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, um, and apparently when that episode aired in the in the United Kingdom, they they cut that clip, that section out of the episode. Because apparently, um, and I haven't seen the episode, or if I if I did, I may have watched it when it originally came out, but I don't remember. But apparently, they had a whole discussion about the IRA and the troubles. That is a little, you know, uh, controversial, maybe. Right. Where they, uh, I don't know if it, it was between Data and Captain Picard, and they, you know, they uh, they talk about the merits and weaknesses of terrorism. Uh, and this is from uh, IrishCentral.com. Uh, quote: The pair discusses the merits and weaknesses of terrorism. Data actually cites Northern Ireland as one example of terrorism working. So, <laughs> and then he then he predict then uh, says he also highlights the reunification of Ireland in 2024 as a demonstration of a conflict that achieved its desired aim. So, that's you know we'll see how <laughs> how accurate Star Trek was. We live in strange times. <laughs> Where it's yeah. it's well, Simpsons uh, did it. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder if the Simpsons are going to do it next. Or what yeah. did the Simpsons say on the matter back in the the nineties or early two thousands? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if they predicted exactly what's going on now. Um, all right, and now we're looking at Finland. 
Finland's president and prime minister both voiced the need for the country to join NATO amid Russia's continued invasion of Ukraine on Thursday, May 12th. They are likely to apply soon and, ex and are expected to be approved quickly. Officials believe Sweden will also follow suit. Russian President Vladimir Putin condemned the announcement, with the Kremlin announcing it would have to take, quote, military technical steps in retaliation. Uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, it's just a vague threat. Yeah. Uh, they add some the, missiles, they, move some stuff. Maybe some hacking attacks. Yeah. I got a laugh out of uh, Turkey. It was like, no, we don't want them joining. And technically, they could veto it. But um, oh, I, I could imagine right after that, uh, all the other nations in NATO say, okay, we're going to start a group called the North of uh, the Atlantic, <laughs> the Northern, <laughs> what's the North Atlantic? Some like Northern Atlantic Treaty Organization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, it has Sweden and Finland in it, but not Turkey. Right. <laughs> we can uh, keep Turkey. everything else the same. Um, all right. Well, speaking of that, let's get into Ukraine. Uh, first off, in an interview with Politico, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitro Kubela expressed frustration with Western allies for delays in sending weapons to the country. He said that Russia could have been stopped earlier if United States officials trusted Ukraine's ability to withstand the invasion. He said, quote, but if we had been heard from the very beginning on all the weapons that we need to receive, if we didn't have to spend hours and days explaining to partners in Europe and in the United States why we need specifically this weapon and not another one, we would have received all these weapons by now. We would have trained all the people, and the situation on the ground would have been much different, would have been much better. This is where all of us lost time and allowed Putin to gain what he shouldn't have, end quote. The U.S. officials point out that they did send Javelin anti-tank missiles, which have played a key role in holding off Russian forces. The officials also say that they sent Soviet equipment because that's what Ukrainian forces were already trained with. The, the officials pointed out that more modern weapon systems like Patriot missiles would require months of training before Ukrainian forces could utilize them. So, uh, speaking of Soviet junk, on Monday, <laughs> May, <laughs> you like that? On Monday, May 9th, Vladimir Putin oversaw Russia's Victory Day parade, and, Ukra and Ukraine responded with a Victory Day parade of its own made up of captured and destroyed Russian tanks and other military vehicles. <laughs> I didn't hear about this. <laughs> yes. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense tweeted, quote, The 93rd UA Army Brigade held a parade of trophy Russian tanks ruining the holiday for the occupiers. Maybe aggressors think that by arming UA Army with Russian trophy equipment, it will affect the turn of NATO-style armament. New clever plan. <laughs> so that okay, was that uh, was a good that was a good troll that's a sick burn recently <laughs> russia is reported to have lost most of two battalions of soldiers and tanks while trying to cross the seversky donetsk river which runs west to east between donetsk donetsk i think, I think it's donetsk donetsk and luhansk 
while crossing on pontoon bridges, the Russian forces were drilled with Ukrainian artillery and lost up to 100 vehicles and more than 1,000 troops, according to Forbes. Uh, it's World War Z. That's why they had the Z for zombie. Just uh, cross water. Oh. oh, I haven't read that book. I watched the movie, but I've heard the book is much better. Um, meanwhile, Russian forces continue to hit the port city of Odessa, likely in an attempt to limit Ukraine's access to the Black Sea. The Russian blockade of Odessa has affected global food supplies as Ukraine isn't able to ship grains to a number of foreign countries that depend on the shipments to feed their populations. Oh, well, Russia's doing that for them. What was it? They've like taken like half a billion of Ukrainian grain and right. shipped it off to Syria. So, um, I mean, as far as the global grain supply go goes, I guess that's that's okay. It helps staving off um, starvation in other areas. However, they're redirecting it. To, yeah, but it's still like, no, now you're starving Ukrainians, and they're the ones that grew it. Um, which, yeah, then like, what is it, the Ukrainians might just be like, oh, you know what? Here are the keys to the tractor. Go for it. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what they we were talking about that. Uh, a week or two ago, yeah. Um, at the same time, near Kharkiv, Ukrainian forces seem to have pushed into Russian territory, crossing into the Russian border town of Ternova. If true, it would be the first incident of Ukrainian troops moving into Russian territory. Uh, so that's, that's interesting. Um, I don't know how far they will be able to push into Russia, but that's a turning point. Or at least it seems like a, a, an important turning point. Yeah. Well, I think crossing over was more symbolic than anything else. They probably just, you know, crossed yeah, over the line and like, ha ha, we did it. All right. Now we got other other places we need to throw them out of our territory. Right. Uh, on the flip side of that, though, on Tuesday, May 10th, the United Nations Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine reported that credible information exists that Ukrainian forces are mistreating Russian prisoners of war. Mission head Matilda Wagner said, quote, We have received credible information of torture, ill treatment, and incommunicado detention by Ukrainian armed forces of prisoners of war belonging to the Russian armed forces and affiliated armed groups. This violates fundamental rules of international humanitarian law. Ukraine and Russia must promptly and effectively investigate all allegations of torture and ill treatment of prisoners of war. They must also effectively control and instruct their forces to stop any further violations from occurring. So, yeah, I mean, both sides are going to, I feel like that's probably true in just about any conflict. Uh, both sides are going to break the rules when it comes to their, you know, prisoners of war and Maybe this Probably is everything. something. Maybe this is something that United Nations or a third-party force could do, like Kazakhstan and Turkey, who are kind of, you know, neutral in this. Um, they maybe they can take care of the prisoners. <laughs> you know, like their goal is to just watch the prisoners and like. Maybe Turks could watch the prisoner, the Russian prisoners, or the prison, the the prisoners that are in Ukraine. 
um, that were fighting for Russians, and then maybe Kazakhs or Uzbek. Well, not that Uzbekistan. I don't think they're in the CSTO, but you know, some soldiers from the CSTO that guard the Ukrainians, and neither of those groups would have an interest in harming or torturing the prisoners, and maybe it could get the go-ahead from the United Nations or something. Like, hey, this is something that can be done that, you know, and you can still work out prisoner exchanges, kind of a semi-neutral outer party. Right. But would, um, you know, like Ukraine with Russian prisoners, wouldn't they, don't they have like a, a motivation to keep the prisoners themselves to try to extract intelligence from them? Or is that considered another breach of uh, international law? No, you can interrogate people. Um, yeah, well, maybe they hold them for a little bit, but then hand them over after they've gotten all the information. Right. Well, I but, mean, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, you know, uh, living in a world where a mental um, world where war is not as horrible as it is or trying right. to make it less horrible. But yeah, I mean, people don't want to give up their prisoners for that reason. It's like, well, We're it's a leverage and it's, you know, yeah. uh, maybe we could get some information out of them. Yeah. We're just spitballing here. You know, no bad ideas in brainstorming. Um, Unless you, uh, well, never mind. I, I I started to segue into Russia, and I I didn't have it. It was I thought it was there, but it wasn't. Um, uh, Russian war plans left behind in the town of Trostyanets indicate Vladimir Putin intended to take all of Ukraine, according to Ukrainian officials. Ukraine's State Bureau of Investigation chief Alexei Sukachev said in a statement, "Quote." Investigators found important documents of soldiers of the Russian Federation's armed forces that give a clear understanding that Russia was preparing to seize all the territory of Ukraine. All this information will be studied, end quote. Russian forces occupied uh, Trostyanets for a month before pulling out earlier in the invasion. Um, and now uh, also... Officials report official reports say that downed Russian Su-34 fighter jets are being found with old GPS units taped to their dashboards. From Independent, quote, British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace said a charge sheet of the Russian army's failure, including poor battle preparation and inadequate equipment for its invasion in Ukraine should be placed at the feet of Moscow's general staff of the Russian army. Calling the Russian invasion of Ukraine an illegal war, Mr. Wallace on Monday said that Russia's top officers failed their troops on the ground as their vehicles did not contain situ situational awareness and digital battle management as required. Citing Russia's inadequate equipment and support to soldiers during invasion, the defense secretary said, Russian vehicles had not been maintained properly and immobilized many logistics vehicles, leading to cheap tires being blown out and truck axle hub failures, all due to poor maintenance or the money for that maintenance being taken elsewhere, end quote. So it's just more reports of what we've been hearing that, you know, uh, there's probably lots of uh, embezzlement, uh, you know, 
of money that was supposed to go toward the Russian military ended up in a few people's pockets. Yeah. Well, and also uh, kind of just laziness um, and a, a lack of discipline, like the whole tire things. It's like you got to dr drive the car, especially if it's parked in the sun. You got to not, you know, not leave the tires facing the same direction, you know. Park right. You have to. Yeah. As and, just part of ongoing maintenance, you have to move them around. They just they just didn't do that, apparently. So it's like, yeah, they've got like 12,000 tanks mothballed or something. I mean, I, I hear so many different numbers. I have no idea how, how much they have mothballed. But uh, they said a lot of that's probably just um, broken. I mean, maybe they can get it to the battlefield. But as we've seen, it's not done very well once there. And, you know, tires blowing out. And the tires were, I think they found out, uh, were Chinese made. And just low quality, so it was right. somebody they, going with the cheapest bidder. Yeah, not. Excuse me. Yeah, that seems to track with what we've seen so far, uh, and all of that is uh, despite the fact that on Thursday, May twelfth, the International Energy Association, or I'm sorry, the International Energy Agency announced that Russia's oil revenues rose by fifty percent this year despite boycotts from other nations. From Yahoo Finance, quote, Moscow's exports rebounded last month by 620,000 BPD from March to 8.1 million BPD back to their January and February average as India and China picked up supply rerouted from the U.S. and Europe. However, despite working on a Russia crude import ban, the EU remained the top market for oil exports in April, according to the IEA's monthly market report. So it does. It sounds like, you know, they did. They still have money. They, you know, they just uh, didn't spend it on maintaining their vehicles. <laughs> and they're, you know, and despite all of the talk that's going on about, you know, Russia boycotts and sanctions and everything. They're still making bank on their oil and gas exports. Yeah, well, and that's that's going to end up being a talking point for you know like, uh, people that don't want to support the war or support the Ukrainians. It's like, oh well, you know, if we why are we gonna why are we gonna boycott that oil? I mean, somebody's gonna buy it anyway. You know, and, oh, it's just making prices for us go up, and and oh. Yeah, I expect we're going to hear more of that. The Russian line is the Russian propaganda machine and their bots and everything. They're going to want the echo chambers to start saying, look at how things are getting so expensive in the U.S. Look at how, you know, things are getting so expensive. We should right. be caring about our people and not about somebody across the world. And it's like, uh, right. pretty much all connected in this fight for freedom. Right. <laughs> also, you know, the, a lot of evidence is pointing that, you know, oil executives not not just russian oil executives but american and european oil executives are inflating the price artificially just because they're they think they can get away with it you well there's know? no such thing as an artificial price uh, it's the price is whatever people will pay for it and if they can pay, charge eight dollars a gallon they'll charge eight dollars a gallon that's you know that's the market you know it's um when i was living in benin the the nice restaurants were very expensive like all equal to more expensive than 
a restaurant in the U.S., you know, so here I'm living in one of the poorest countries on earth. And if I go out to, uh, you know, a kind of Western style restaurant, I'm going to end up spending like 12 to $15 a meal, which is like more than people make in a week. And it's like, well, man, how could it be so expensive here? Because I know chicken doesn't cost that much because, you know, other people are, you know, I can buy a chicken for, I think it was, I mean, it's less than a dollar for the chickens <laughs> or something. Right. And it's just, well, this is what people will pay to eat this meal. Right. The so people yeah. who can afford it will pay it. Right. So, yeah, they're just people charge what, what they can. And uh, Bolivia has managed to keep their inflation pretty low. But they also have, um, uh, it's not really a, pr well, they, I guess they do have some price controls, but uh, subsidized prices. So it's pretty much like it's $2 a gallon. So that's a uh, gas. That's what somebody in Bolivia pays for gasoline. And if it goes up to $4, and the person still pays $2. And then the government pays the other $2. So instead of like, you know, welfare checks or something, like getting, getting money per month or food per month, what they do is set maximum prices on certain necessary goods. And they also is produce that, a lot of their own food. Is that similar to what Kazakhstan was doing that they ended, which led to the the protests that happened a little while back? It was similar. Yeah, they had, um, well, they subsidized the price. I don't think they had a maximum price. Well, I think they do now because it's back to being cheap. Uh, but yeah, they were like, if it costs this and there was a subsidy of this to reduce the price, but I, I, it still fluctuated a little bit. Um, my understanding okay. is there wasn't a maximum price. It was just reduced. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's still the, sim the idea is similar to help people kind of, kind of get on, you know, and um, the the good thing about it is, you know, like everything is, all the other prices are fuel dependent. Um, I mean, so many things, whatever the price of corn, wheat, and fuel. Uh, right. Soybeans. And that's just how it is so, everywhere yeah, because so. whatever food they grow, they have to move it. They have to transport it to yeah. the people. Yep. Well, and fertilizers, so, yeah. petrochemicals. Um and then tractors run on petrochemicals. And then our cows, you want meat, pigs, you want meat, they're going to eat. Um, oh, crab, alfalfa, hay, corn, uh, you know, the, these sorts of things. So, uh, right. the, you know, the, the price of producing that goes up, then everything else does. So, But in Bolivia, they try to put a maximum on that. And they use, I think, their oil revenue but they also for their exports uh, another thing is like you know um, exporting tea i'll just say tea uh, um in bolivia and they say oh i have the special tea and it says oh well it should be you know like a dollar a kilo for for it right uh well i'm charging five dollars a kilo because these you know foreigners will give it to me then they'll say, nope, nope, we're not going to give you an export license because we have a shortage of tea in this country and it costs you 50 cents to grow it. So, yeah, you can sell it for a dollar because, you know, that's, that's an okay markup, whatever, you know. I'm just kind of making right. the numbers up, but they have their right. idea about what they think is a fair markup or a fair profit. And by 
I mean, it's an interference in the market, and it's probably why there was that kind of coup where the right wing took over, but then they lost the elections and were replaced again. And um, But yeah, prices have been fairly stable there. I mean, I don't know if they can maintain it. I mean, at some point, they'll have to start raising taxes if, you know, gasoline doesn't get cheaper. Yeah. Well, um, not everyone is, you know, angry with Russia. The Republic of South Ossetia, is that okay? Or is that too cheesy? No, that's fine, yeah. Okay. But I think it's Ossetia. 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 The Republic of South Ossetia, part of the country of Georgia, will hold a referendum on joining Russia, breaking ties with its current country. The announcement came from President Anatoly uh, Bibilov, who recently lost his bid for re-election. However, the incoming president, Alan Gagloff, has also expressed pro-Russian sentiment. So it sounds like uh, the Republic of South Ossetia has been uh, moving toward joining Russia for a while now. Yeah, I mean, they've they've all been given Russian passports. Um, And, you know, it's it's only got like 60,000 people living there. So, I mean, it's, I think, just more or less a land grab on Russia's part. But, yeah, I don't know. In North Ossetia, they've had a couple of um, fires, mysterious fires recently. Uh, like a warehouse and a market. Uh, but, yeah, well, this can be a flashpoint, though, because if they officially claim it, I think they're they're trying to to do it while uh, the U.S. is distracted, and you know, like, well, we've got other fish to fry, and also because you know Georgia will be afraid to do anything. But I don't know. Georgia might say, no, we're not going to accept this and declare war. And uh, I mean, that might be the smart thing, but at the same time, is it worth it? I mean, it might be better to just let it go, but I'm not Georgian, so I don't really have a say. (laughs) How much military aid could they receive from, you know, Western allies? Because I've seen reports that the United States has sort of depleted some of its own stockpiles, uh, like missiles and things, by sending so much stuff to Ukraine. Oh, Halliburton's and... Um, Raytheon, they'll, they'll get that stuff out pretty fast. Um, but I don't know. I just don't know if Georgia could hold Russia back, even with Russia being so in not a good shape right now. Like, I just don't know. I, I, I don't know. Right. And I would hope so. But um, Georgia's a beautiful country. Um, I know some people there. I know some Russians who moved there um, recently. Um, and yeah, that would be really unfortunate for them. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's likely to heat up. Um, but Georgia has been using it as a proxy war, like eh, indirectly. I wouldn't say the country hasn't, but some of the people, because there's the Georgia Legion and um in Ukraine, but it's got a lot of people from all over, but the plurality, if not majority, are Georgian. Yeah. Um, and then uh, our last bit today, um, yet another 
foreign or former Russian oligarch has died under strange circumstances. Uh, the, I believe that brings the total up to seven now. Alexander Subotin was found dead in the home of a so-called Russian shaman on Sunday, May 8th. He died of an apparent heart attack in the shaman's basement, which is reported to have been used for voodoo rituals. Local news outlets report that Subotin visited the shaman for a hangover cure involving toad venom. Apparently, uh, Subotin showed up after, uh, you know, uh, the reports say, you know, he had been on a, a vendor, big drinking and drugging binge, and he went to the shaman, which he apparently is a normal thing for him. He regularly... <laughs> visited the shaman uh for a toad venom hangover cure that uh i read reports of that that it involved uh you make an incision in the person's skin you cut them open a little bit and then you drip some toad venom in there and it makes the person violently ill you get vomiting and diarrhea and then afterward they feel better so it kind of it sounds like they just make you feel so bad that when the toad venom effects wear off, you've forgotten about the hangover. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, like uh, with a little kid, like, oh, I hurt my toe. Well, I can punch you in the arm. Then you'll forget about your toe. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Um, but there are some, uh, you know, like it, it's, a, it's a given the number of other russian oligarchs former oil executives who have died in weird situations uh including those two who died in a family murder suicide like within a day of each other uh you know it does seem a little suspicious especially if this is something that sabatin has done regularly and it didn't kill him in the past you know right if so it's hard to say obviously because if you know, he was doing this toad venom thing. The idea that it killed him. Yeah. The idea that it killed him doesn't sound to me anyway, I'm not a medical professional, but it doesn't sound that far fetched that it would kill him. But at the same time, if you wanted Sabatin dead and you knew that he did this, that would present you with a, a really easy opportunity, you know, Maybe you add it, give him a little extra toad venom. Maybe you put a little just put something toad. else in there, right? You know, what, whatever it is, or yeah, put something else on the toad, however it works. But yeah, a little extra toad venom, but right? It would be a perfect opportunity to, uh, yeah, but, slip but what I'm getting at is the shaman may not have even been involved, you know, like somebody that knew just enough about it, you know, could have tainted his stuff and he does what he normally does but then the guy dies and he's like oh crap ah, i'm going to yeah. jail yeah but this uh you know it's it's really hard to say especially in this yeah. case yeah a lot of mysterious deaths occurring right it's very strange there yeah uh yeah and you know we continue to worry about the potential for uh the use of nuclear weapons of Russia using nuclear weapons. Uh, I saw some people speculate, uh, and this is, you know, uh, just speculation, but the possibility that, you know, Russia might like try to legally annex 
the, those breakaway regions, uh, the Donbass, and then consider any attacks on them as attacks on Russia, thus justifying in their eyes the use of nuclear weapons. Um, you know, it's that's like I said, that's just speculation, but it's. Well, I don't even know, think it, that fits their code because they're. I think their code is still. It must be an existent, existential threat, like. Moscow itself is about to fall or something. Right. But then again, that's just, you know, they made up their own rules. So there's nothing to say that they <laughs> change their own rules. But it's a, you know, it's a tightrope. Uh, and then, of course, if they start using nuclear weapons, uh, other countries will almost certainly uh, retaliate with nuclear weapons. Well, I've got so, some good news for you. Oh, thank God. Yeah. All right, so you're probably worried about nuclear winter. Among other things, yeah. All right, well, well, that particular problem you, you probably don't have to worry about. I mean, they kind of came up with that in the 60s and 70s, and, and then it fell off the radar. But, you know, they've been kind of studying it, and could it, you know, how accurate and were they? And, they found and that's that the idea that, the, and nuclear winter is the idea that, enough dust and debris will be kicked up into the atmosphere to block off a significant portion of the sunlight, thus, like, cooling the planet. Yeah, and so that the, the particles produced would likely be too heavy to stay in the atmosphere for too long. Well, good, and, they'll rain down on us. <laughs> but, well, it also, well, it would also be dispersed so much that you're probably going to be fine, too. And the, wherever the the bombs drop will be, you could live there and within eighteen months. If if they explode in the air, if they explode on the ground, it might be more like it might be as long as ten years. So you know you'll have to wait ten years before you can go to New York. But if it explodes above New York, then well, within eighteen months you can go back there. So you know it's not it's not going to be the sun's blacked out. It's just going to be hundreds of millions of people dead instead uh. of. Instead of, you know, what have we got, 9 billion instead of 8 or 9 billion. Now, the general societal collapse of uh, <laughs> that follows will probably kill more people than radiation and explosions. That's something right. to worry about. But the sun will start shining again. And which is, which is uh, funny. Uh, I mean, in as much as any of this could be funny, that considering global warming, nuclear winter... Maybe it would counteract global warming. Was, they that mentioned was, uh, that on Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it said, oh, I'm glad global warming never happened. And she said, oh, it did. But nuclear winter canceled it out. <laughs> well, I've got bad news. Nuclear winter will not cancel it out. Wait, you said it was good news. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, okay. Well, I guess mixed news. Yeah, I don't know which silver lining do you want. Nuclear winter cancels out um, global warming, but all of humanity dies. <laughs> or... <laughs> I'm starting to believe that it's going to be difficult to find a silver lining in nuclear war. I'm yeah. beginning to suspect. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. There, there won't be a silver lining. That's kind of why you kind of just all that you can really do is joke about it. Or do that whole prepper thing. Oh, that's exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. And then <laughs> yeah. you have to 
eat those buckets of nasty like broccoli cheddar pasta and they sell them at costco and they sell them online i've seen youtube videos of people who bought them it's like you know a five gallon bucket of uh, a freeze-dried food that you're supposed to just add water to and you can eat it and it's like uh, <laughs> but it's it ends up as this, this disgusting goop that's almost inedible uh or you could set up something like uh john goodman in 10 cloverfield lane oh that was he a good movie a, yeah yeah and he had a he had a good uh he had a good uh bunker but that was a movie so <laughs> uh Okay, well, that wraps it up for another week of Raw File News. Um, join us next week as we, you know, bring you more uh, silver linings, maybe. Hopefully, we'll see. Um, in the meantime, you can uh, find links to all of the, the stories that we've mentioned on our website, ciafiles.net. Uh, there you can also find a link to our merchandise, our Threadless store, as well as our Patreon and our Buy Me a Coffee uh, if you want to support the show. And you can follow us on Twitter uh, at CIA Files Podcast, Instagram at CIA Files, Facebook.com slash CIA Files. And in the meantime, uh, stay safe out there. And, uh, you know, try to get along with your neighbors, I guess. That's that's the main thing uh, we can do. Maybe <laughs> the only thing it feels like. Uh, yeah, so have a great week. All right. See you next time.